From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Coming up, what the governor's emergency declaration on coronavirus means for day-to-day life. Also, what stands out about people's reactions to COVID-19? We'll get a sociologist's perspective. Later, a healthy dose of non-pandemic stories, including cloud seeding. Scientists have struggled to say just how effective it is at boosting snowfall until now. Also, how a fantasy role-playing game is changing the real lives of teens. Oh, Valley of Eternal Snow, why do you speak of such a dreadful place? And a bread recipe that may attract more than dinner guests. A bear broke into the car and ate what was left of the challah. We'll do some baking from Shalom on the Range in our series about Colorado's forgotten cookbooks. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The state is trying to get a much better sense of how widespread coronavirus has become. This morning, a free drive-up testing center opens in Denver's Lowry neighborhood. Patients need a doctor's order and should be prepared for long wait times. Governor Jared Polis hopes to open a second center in the high country soon, all part of a declaration he made Tuesday. In order to contain the spread of the coronavirus, to protect our most vulnerable populations, and to maximize our chances of avoiding widespread disruptions to the daily lives of Coloradans and our economy, I'm declaring a state of emergency here in Colorado. Polis went on to play a sort of head coach role. We're going to get through this together, uh, but the actions that we take in the next few days and weeks will really determine the trajectory of coronavirus in Colorado. Okay, so what does this declaration mean for everyday life? CPR health reporter John Daly is here with Perspective. Nice to see you again, John. Thanks, Ryan. Good to be here. What does it mean to be under a state of emergency in Colorado? Well, it gives officials access to resources and more legal flexibility to take steps now to protect the most vulnerable people in nursing homes, for example, and to better contain the outbreak. The idea is to avoid a repeat of what we're seeing in Italy, where the entire country of 60 million people is essentially on a lockdown and the public health system is being overwhelmed. Yeah. And the idea is intervening early could prevent really uh, skyrocketing number of cases. Exactly. If you have skyrocketing number of cases and a certain high percentage of those cases get sick and, and let's say 5% or something like that gets critically ill, that's a real problem. And that's what we're trying to stave off. Okay. For now, uh, it seems like what this emergency declaration means is still to be determined for our daily lives. It just gives the governor some flexibility to make the kinds of decisions that might affect us. Indeed. But, you know, it could impact folks in a lot of ways, like, for instance, school closures, cancellation or postponement of mass events like concerts, conferences, sporting events, Nuggets games, uh, working from home if possible and more. We just have to wait and see. We don't know. On Tuesday, Denver announced it's canceling its annual St. Patrick's Day parade. We're in a sort of check the event before you go reality at this point. As for testing, John, how is the state deciding who gets checked? You know, the state is trying to test as many people as possible who might have the disease so they know where people who are infected are. If they know where those people are, they can prevent them from spreading it. The highest priority is people with symptoms who traveled in an area with infections or came in contact with 
infected people, but they're also more broadly looking at testing people who have symptoms like fever, cough, or respiratory issues. They want to try to rule out the flu and other possible causes first. They've gotten a lot more tests, and they're testing more people, but not everybody who's worried about getting this will actually get tested. That's just the numbers reality. The governor also expects that Colorado will at some point have a case of community transmission. What does that mean? Well, that's when the disease spreads without direct contact with a severely infected person. Until community transmission begins to happen, the disease should remain relatively confined to people who contracted it outside of this community. But once community transmission starts, that means the disease is spreading from person to person before health officials can catch it. Okay. Do you expect that soon? Or that's a crystal ball? Yeah, who knows? But that that would be another threshold that uh, public health officials will be watching. Something to watch out for. So what specifically is the state doing to encourage or enable people from going to work if they're sick. That's a big issue here. Absolutely. That's a key thing. The governor said he'd asked for an emergency rule giving paid sick time off to people working in restaurants and hospitality and education. Now, that could affect some 15 percent of the workforce in Colorado, which is hundreds of thousands of people. It would apply to people who are waiting on test results but wouldn't necessarily provide leave for the whole recovery period. Now, the state is also considering ways to provide unemployment benefits if workers are laid off or forced to stay home because, let's say, even restaurants are closed. What else is the state doing, John Daly? Well, as you noted, today it's opening this drive-through testing clinic. We've really never seen this before. To get more people tested without exposing medical workers, this is critical. Uh, People do need a doctor's note to get tested there, uh, and they need a photo ID. Now, this is in the Lowry neighborhood in Denver. Uh, It's open 10 to 2 today. Uh, Thursday and Friday, the schedule could change for next week. The governor's office is discouraging the media, discouraging us from being there to protect patient privacy. Yeah, the idea of showing up and having a swarm of cameras does not probably feel good. You've also been checking into what hospitals are doing to prepare. What have you learned? Yeah, I sat in on a conference call on Monday about this. This is fascinating. They're preparing for a pandemic, and that's a scary word. It's described as an increase, often sudden, in the number of cases of a disease spread over several countries or continents, usually affecting a large number of people. Now, the real fear is something like we're seeing in Italy, like we talked about, where the number of cases swamps the health system. That's what they're preparing for. That's the worst case scenario. And what are they worried about specifically? What are they bracing for? Well, if a lot of systems, the hospitals are focusing on, have to do things like personal personal protective equipment, uh, that's stuff like masks and gowns and gloves, are also concerned about hospital workers. So what you really want to avoid is having too many people for the system to accommodate. Here's uh, Darlene Taddy. She's vice president of clinical affairs for the Colorado Hospital Association. The two real bottlenecks for hospitals and health systems are going to be, do we have the staff and clinicians we need to be able to take care of this number of patients. And then also, of course, the personal protective equipment that we need. She noted that medical professionals professionals need that gear so they don't get sick and can still care for patients. But we're all see, already seeing a big disruption in the supply chain, including for this protective gear, which is made in China. That's where the disease first took off. And factories that make the gear there are just coming back online. So it may be a few more weeks before some of those supplies start flowing again. Oh. And uh, so the word that we're hearing with the, the things like masks is conservation. 
And the last thing is that the emergency response gets overwhelmed. Let's say running out of hospital beds. The hospitals are pretty full right now because we this is flu season, but they have plans to accommodate people. So this is all about that curve that we were talking about before, really limiting the number of people who get uh, get sick. The worry here isn't just that people with COVID-19 don't get the treatment they need. Other diseases here, too. Sure. If the system gets swamped, then that makes it harder to treat the other people that are sick, cancer patients or people who have heart attacks. Now, one good thing in Colorado is that we have a lot of hospital capacity. They've been growing uh, more and more uh, uh, places coming online, and they've got uh, the, the space to accommodate and things like isolation rooms where they could put patients if needed. So there's a lot of preparations that have been in, in place. And also, you know, we've been through this drill before with wildfires and floods and, and mass shootings. Hospitals, I, th- I think they say they're as ready as they can be and uh, getting more ready by the day. John, thanks so much for being with us. You bet. CBR Health reporter John Daly. We've posted information about testing and answers to frequently asked questions about COVID-19 in both English and Spanish at CPR. As lawmakers and medical experts develop policies and guidelines to combat the spread of the new coronavirus, everyday people are making their own decisions about how to prepare and respond. We're going to get some insight from a sociologist. Kathleen Tierney is sociology professor at CU Boulder. Welcome to the program. It's good to be here. I understand that starting today, all staff not required on the Boulder campus can stay home. They're encouraged to do so. Before we get into sociology, what decision have you made for yourself as a professor? Um, I'm working from home. You're working from home. Okay. Do you know that many others have made that decision as well? I think so, yes. When you see empty shelves, you know, where toilet paper used to be, Professor, you don't see it as people panicking. What do you see? Well, first of all, people have been asked to prepare. They've been asked to visualize what it would be like if they would have to sort of shelter at home or shelter in place. And so they're following guidance. Um, I think that we also, though, need to keep in mind that there are lots of people who don't have the money to go out and stockpile goods. And uh, that, that will be an issue, perhaps, going forward. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of ways in which an epidemic shows the vulnerabilities of a society, perhaps the inequalities of society. Things have certainly been escalating in the U.S., Colorado yesterday declaring a state of emergency. New York mandated a containment area in New Rochelle. Um, But even if things got much worse, you don't anticipate scenes of chaos, like looting or violence. Explain why not. Oh, I don't expect that sort of thing to happen at all. I expect the most common response to be very responsible, very pro-social, where people pull together and help one another. What evidence do you have to support that? Well, we, we see it in all different kinds of crisis situations, such as disasters, um, What we know about the way that communities respond to stressors is that is that people have more of a tendency to help one another and to pull together. And where did did you see that? I don't know. I suppose 9-11 might be a a good example. Oh, absolutely. We see it in every type of community crisis. The social order doesn't break down. Um, under conditions of stress. In fact, uh, people are often their best 
uh, at times like this. Meanwhile, we've heard instances of xenophobia, plummeting sales at Chinese restaurants. So square that for me with your view. Well, I think that what we're seeing is in part a reflection of our larger culture where xenophobia has become more common and there has been a tendency to put blame on the so-called other, whether we're talking about immigrants and people coming to the border or people who don't look like, quote-unquote, mainstream America. So that has been in the air and uh, is influencing people's behavior. Okay, but that's in the mix of the rather rosy picture you paint of how communities respond to that's, things like pandemics. That's right. Th- those kinds of responses are not the most common response. Medical experts have also warned healthy people against buying masks because it can contribute to an equipment shortage for medical workers, the sort of fears we were hearing from John Daly, our health reporter. Um, Colorado sold out of medical masks in February. Do you think that speaks to some distrust of authorities providing information about coronavirus? Yes, I do, in part. And I think that a lot of the behaviors that we're seeing, including the, uh, you know, the mass buying that you were just talking about, Ryan, are a response to uncertainty and to the fact that people are getting different messages from different sources instead of a consistent message on what to do. Huh. I suppose social media has something to do with that. The proliferation of misinformation that we've seen sometimes in the political sphere can translate into the health sphere as well. Yes, indeed it does. Uh, And uh, we do need to take into account these kinds of social media effects going forward. In the 1918 flu pandemic, we didn't have Twitter. Um, Now we do. Now we do. Are there examples of how people have responded to past epidemics or pandemics that can give us context for how people are responding and may respond to this coronavirus outbreak? I wonder to what extent you've looked at history as a sociologist. One of the things that we do know, Ryan, is that the way that people in general respond has a lot to do with the way that authorities are approaching the problem. So we mirror that behavior? Well, we, what we need is leadership that, that is um, just, that is equitable, that is clear in terms of the directives uh, that are being issued, um, and that doesn't do anything to exacerbate conflicts that may already exist. Okay, so that's what you're looking for in leaders, I guess, from all the way uh, at the White House on down, because we're, we're seeing that a lot of local communities in Colorado have some real control, some real power in a pandemic situation. And the local community is closer. Local government is closer to people than a distant federal government. But there needs to be a consistent and positive message all the way down through the levels of government and also across our major media. And I'm afraid that's not happening. You're afraid that's not happening. That's correct. You've heard messages to the contrary. We have, just to explore in in the last few moments here, the inequities. We've been hearing from a lot of people in the gig economy this week who 
really don't feel as if they have a safety net. And it, it does occur to me that there are people who are simply more economically vulnerable going into this than others. How, how might that ripple through the broader community, do you think, Professor? Well, that's absolutely the case, what you're saying. And we need to keep in mind that people who are working in the gig economy aren't people who are going to benefit in any way from a payroll tax cut. Um, we need to be looking at the needs of our gig workers, our hourly employees, people in the service sector, uh, people who are living from paycheck to paycheck, and that is so many people in our society. In many ways, you can say that this crisis is exposing and exacerbating the inequities in our society. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Kathleen Tierney, sociology professor at CU Boulder, reflecting on coronavirus. If someone told you they had a way to double snowfall, you'd be understandably wary. You might wonder if they were also selling magic beans. And yet, for the first time, researchers are able to declare just how effective cloud seeding is. Sarah Tassendorf is with the National Center for Atmospheric Research. She joins us from Boulder. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Ryan. The question of whether cloud seeding is a reliable tool to boost snowfall has been unanswered for decades. So I want to ask on a personal level first what it's like to be part of a team that made a discovery showing its effectiveness. How does that feel? Well, it certainly is really exciting. Um, you know, scientists, were really curious people, and we are all about exploration and discovery. And for me personally, it's been something that I've been pursuing since I was really little. I've had a passion for the weather and trying to understand why it does what it does. And so, you know, pursuing my career in scientific research to discover new things and being able to do research that's meaningful and and helps people understand and solve problems related to weather, it really feels great. Yeah, and might help people ski, for that matter, in Colorado. <laughs> um, before we get into what your team did differently to answer this question about snowfall and cloud seeding, just remind us how cloud seeding works in layman's terms. Sure. So cloud seeding is um, a technology that's been around since the 1940s. It's a process to inject small particles into clouds in order to trigger more precipitation to form. And in the type of cloud seeding that I study, we focus on increasing snow in wintertime clouds over the mountains. And the goal is for the seeding material to produce additional ice that then forms additional snow and therefore boosts the overall potential of that cloud to produce snow. Okay. And is the type of cloud seeding you study the kind that is seeded from above, like from an airplane, or from the ground shot up by some sort of cannon? We don't do anything with cannons. We primarily seed with an aircraft or with ground-based generators that can burn like a plume of, of seeding material smoke that um, disperses up into the cloud. Oh, okay. So uh, both from the ground and from the air. The cannon was That's perhaps right. not the greatest uh, picture. Uh, <laughs> no. Okay. Well, what did your team do differently to be able to finally say, gang, this is working? Well, there were several things, um, but I think we definitely um, took advance, uh, advantage of a lot of the latest advances in technology. We, we deployed a lot of new instruments, and we have you know new computers and supercomputers to help us do this type of research. But our team has a collective um, amount of experience over decades collecting this type of research, and we 
learned a lot of lessons over the years. And one of them is that the clouds forming over the mountains are often unable to be detected by radars that, say, the National Weather Service uses. And so we deployed some mobile radars up on top of the mountains so that we could get data in the clouds that are often missed by your normal radar network. And these are the clouds that, when seeded, produced as much as, what, double the snowfall? Well, in in the cases that we report on in our study, they were not producing much natural precipitation at all. So oh. it doesn't take much to double it. Okay. Um, but that's one of the reasons we were able to detect the signal so well is because when we seeded these clouds, the signal looked like a zigzag pattern on the radar. And that's a pattern that Mother Nature does not produce. And so once we saw that pattern, we knew we were seeing the effect of the cloud seeding. And then we were able to trace that to the ground with the radar data and other instrumentation to quantify how much snow was being produced in those zigzags. Oh, that's fascinating. So the zigzag pattern is something that tips you off that the man-made efforts are working because that doesn't naturally occur. That's right. Uh, Our seeding aircraft would fly back and forth, releasing the seeding material, and that's what produced that pattern. And it's definitely not a a natural pattern. Resorts like Vail have paid for cloud seeding for years, and yet they've had little scientific proof of its effectiveness. So have you heard from companies like that? Uh, Are they thrilled at this information? Well, I think that um, a lot of people in the community um, are definitely interested in these results. And from talking to my colleagues, it sounds like these results are changing the conversation about cloud seeding from does cloud seeding work to how much will it work for me or what's the best way to do it to make it work for me. Okay. And I imagine that you will continue to do the kinds of research to answer those questions more specifically. Um, Exactly. In the face of climate change, just as we wrap up here, how important is this understanding? Well, it's certainly something that water managers are interested in, and um, it could be one component of a portfolio for water management. Um, But we certainly need to know more. Um, We know that there are certain conditions that must be met for cloud seeding to work and that that's not going to, those conditions are not going to be met in every cloud everywhere. So we need to better understand how often those conditions do occur, where they occur, and how those conditions might change in a future climate to be able to better answer that. If you seed a cloud over Keystone, for instance, are you robbing uh, a cloud that might someday be over, you know, a resort in California? Um, Yeah, so that's a common question we get. Um, We refer to that as the extra area effects Uh because we're trying to target a certain area with cloud seeding and and in in reality, the seeding material will disperse elsewhere. Um, But it's a really challenging question to answer because as you might imagine, it's been so hard for many decades to answer how much additional snow we're getting in the area that we are targeting um, that when you go outside of those areas where the effect would probably be much more dilute, it's really hard to quantify what those impacts are. Um, But we're hoping with our new research and our new technologies that we have, we have new computer models that we've developed at NCAR that I think will be able to help us better answer this question going forward. So I hear that you've answered an important question. There are still many more to answer. Sarah, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Cloud scientist Sarah Tessendorf with the National Center for Atmospheric Research. She, along with researchers at CU Boulder, wrote about a successful case of cloud seeding in the proceedings of the Natural Academy of Sciences. Okay, Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the real benefits of role-playing games for teens. This is CPR News. 
CPR News is here to answer your questions about newly confirmed coronavirus cases in Colorado. With CPR, we promise you'll get the facts and not the hype. Go to CPR.org for the latest on what we know from the scientific and health communities and what you can do in your daily life. Get up-to-date information and sign up for The Lookout, our daily newsletter. That's all at CPR.org. Semester at sea will not be a full semester because of coronavirus. The ship, with around 550 students aboard, is headed from the island nation of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean to Cape Town, South Africa, and once it docks, kids will fly home, mostly to the United States. Why are we talking about this in landlocked Colorado? Well, because Semester at Sea is based in Fort Collins, and its academic partner is Colorado State University. Spokeswoman Lane Hansen says none of the voyagers are reported sick, but the ship has made stops in Asia, and future ports were wary. There was a perception of the ship being contaminated from the perspective of having gone to any country in Asia. Hansen says Semester at Sea is working with CSU to figure out how students might finish their coursework in a less glamorous setting online. As for how the kids are taking it? I think that there's resignation, disappointment, but also resilience and empathy that this is part of what Semester at Sea teaches students to understand, frankly, the interconnectedness of our world, especially today, but certainly from a personal perspective, they're disappointed and frustrated. Lane Hansen, spokeswoman for Semester at Sea, a study abroad, abroad program based at CSU, which is being curtailed because of coronavirus. Now, while Governor Polis stood in his office in the Capitol to declare a state of emergency over coronavirus Tuesday, the building he was in has still been trying to figure out how to respond should the outbreak get much worse. CPR's public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland, asked how things could change for lawmakers, lobbyists, school groups, and tourists who visit the state capitol every day. At this time of year, things are so crowded here. Even everyday activities like riding up one of the capitol's two elevators can be a bit of a challenge. And uh, two. Oh, wow. Fire code. (laughs) By the end of the ride... Lee Steed says she was feeling quite claustrophobic. I began to pray. (laughs) I closed my eyes because it was just so crowded. Did you really? Yeah, I I did close my eyes. Steed works for Great Education Colorado and was at the Capitol to lobby for more education funding. Steed says she's been using more hand sanitizer, but isn't at the point where coronavirus would dissuade her from coming to the Capitol. Not for me. No, not at all. Like a lot of workplaces, the state capitol is trying to figure out how to balance the risk of coronavirus and the need to get work done. But it's not a typical office. Republican Representative Lori Sane says even under the best of circumstances, it can be a germ factory. Some of our days go extremely long. People are extremely tired or extremely run down. They may be extremely stressed. One of my days was 26 hours. That makes it a ripe environment to make people more susceptible to an illness. According to state tour guides, it also gets about a quarter of a million visitors each year. Sane serves on the Legislative Emergency Response Committee, which will hold a special meeting later this week to discuss coronavirus. Democratic Representative Brianna Titone chairs that committee. 
we have a lot of people in the building all the time. And we don't really know where they've been or where they're coming from. And that might be something we want to take into consideration, have a screening process. But lawmakers can't shut down the doors of the Capitol entirely. The law says each bill must have a public hearing with testimony from the public. They could theoretically run the session remotely. But lawmakers in both parties say there would be huge logistical challenges with that. The simplest option, if things get really bad, might be to temporarily stop the session. We could always go into a special session afterwards and uh, reconvene to finish some of the work that we started. It would be up to legislative leaders to decide whether the virus gets to the point where the Capitol becomes an unsafe working environment. So I'm concerned that we don't actually know how widespread it is. That's Democratic House Majority Leader Alec Garnett. He says he's already stocked up a bit on groceries. And he wants to be proactive at the Capitol, too. And so it's just something that we need to make sure that we're prepared for. We know what to do if we need to shut down the building. What are we going to do with the Capitol and with the legislative session? For now, it's still mostly business as usual at the Capitol. But even business as usual involves a lot of upkeep. Hey, I'm Benta. Nice to meet you. And you're Doug. I am Doug. So you're kind of in charge of keeping this building clean, huh? Well, our department is. The Department of Personnel. That's Doug Platt with the Department of Personnel and Administration. A dozen custodial staff work around the clock, from the rotunda to the basement committee hearing rooms. We wipe down flat surfaces, we polish the brass, we disinfect the handrails, and that's all done on a daily basis. We sort of liken it to painting the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, you know, by the time you get from one end to the other, you got to go back to the beginning and start all over again. Colorado's capital isn't the only one worried about coronavirus. Utah's legislature implemented a no-handshake policy. Colorado lawmakers say they're not ready to go that far just yet. They hope people will take their own precautions, even if the Capitol's crowded halls can make that difficult. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. Dungeons and Dragons is a role-playing game popular in the 1970s and 80s. It's been experiencing a resurgence partly because a recent edition is more accessible to beginners. The Netflix show Stranger Things certainly hasn't heard either. Well, a new company south of Denver uses Dungeons and Dragons in a new, unique way, and that's to teach teens who struggle socially how to function in the real world. Producer Natasha Watts stopped by one of the sessions. You got it, you got it. Eight teenagers meet behind a rec center after dark. No, they're not vaping e-cigarettes or spraying graffiti. They're playing Dungeons and Dragons. My gosh! I'll give you The group meets in a little building next to the water slides, separate from the rest of the center. Four tables have been pushed together, and the teens sitting at them fiddle with piles of colorful dice. Jamie Fleckno stands at the front of the room. Aside from me, she's the only adult. Go ahead and make a intelligence check. Fleckno started Role Play Lead in 2019. Now she meets with four groups between Castle Rock and Littleton to lead sessions of D&D, as the players call it. 
She believes this fantasy role-playing game supports the development of teens who have trouble in social situations. It gives you this really awesome opportunity to be different, to step into somebody's shoes who is really charismatic. Maybe you have really bad social anxiety and you can't talk to people. Well, now you have this really cool character who can, so now you have to talk to people. Oh, oh Valley of Eternal Snow, why do you speak of such a dreadful place? Well, we have to go out there for an important secret business and we just need to This kind of game is so different than like Monopoly. Monopoly is meant to make you miserable, right? One person wins, the rest of the group loses. This game, we're all working together. So we are all um, shooting for this big story goal that I have developed. And so the group fails or succeeds together. And when they succeed together, we can cheer. When we fail together, we can collect ourselves, pat each other on the back, and say, this is what we got to do differently next time. Fleckno plays the role of dungeon master. She creates the world and the obstacles the kids face. So seven to eight hundred years ago is when the snow started. I created an entire continent for the adventurers to explore, and we start in a small town. I've created particular NPCs, which are non-playable characters. They're the characters that I voice for lack of a better word, and they very much push them along. Trish helps you make it. She does tell you a little bit about how they have to go and import the clay for it. I've received phone calls or emails from parents explaining a particular thing about their child, and I have brought it into the campaign. But I get so lucky with these kids. The longer they're together, the more they support each other. And I don't have to do that as often. They've gotten to know each other, and they've created this particular bond as friends and as characters who are friends, that when somebody says, oh, I suck, this is the worst day ever and I'm the worst, they'll turn and say, no, you're not. You're just having a bad day. It's okay. The party I spent time with is Fleckno's longest running group. They've been with her since Roleplay Lead began last summer. I spoke with a pair of step-siblings in the Tuesday group. My name's Ella and uh, Roland. Ella played Dungeons and Dragons before this. She's the dungeon master in a campaign with her school friends. They play any chance they get, after finishing classwork, during free period. The two used to fight a lot. I asked if playing D&D has made a difference in their relationship. Oh my gosh, a bunch. We. When was the last time we fought? I have no clue. Every time we come home, we talk about her campaign. We talk about new characters I'm thinking of. Like, she she loves the aspect of story making. I'm over here with, like, 40 characters I'm not even using that I just made because I could. Roland also appreciates the community they've created in this particular group. It's a safe place to talk about things happening at school or happening at home, and you know that they won't judge you because this is... This is a game full of making decisions, but then your decisions out of life, people can, I don't know how to explain this. Like, I just feel safe that I can talk to anybody. This was deliberate on Fleckno's part. Many kids who come to class are on the autism spectrum, have dyslexia or dysgraphia, or experience serious social anxiety. She's empathetic because she faced similar issues as a teen. I have PTSD, so I've been living with that for a bunch of years, uh, and then I have... I have anxiety to an extent. It's gotten worse as I've gotten older. When I was younger, it just looked different. It looked like temper tantrums. It looked like me locking myself in my room and crying hysterically for 10 minutes with, like, no idea what was happening. I used to call it my Incredible Hulk syndrome. Oh, my anxiety is preaching about 28%. I've got kids who get up and dance in the middle of class, especially when we're in the middle of a battle and gets high anxiety. And I just let them. I'm not, you know... I've seen teachers in classrooms, not all of them, but say, you know, you have to sit in your seat. 
Nope, you don't have to sit in your seat. You can get up and move around if you need to. I'm privy to one such high-anxiety situation. Our fearless party is traveling through a mountain pass when a mysterious light appears. It's 30 feet. They're moving towards us. Get your 20 feet. The party begins their fight against the evil specter, which is to say they take turns rolling dice that determine the success of, say, an attack with a sword or a freezing spell. One participant, Sawyer, plays a wizard who's squishy. He's not built to battle on the front lines, but he's eager to participate, and this often puts him in the line of fire. Eventually, Sawyer dies completely. Cooper Raymond's character has died in previous campaigns. He says it's not a fun experience. He feels personally responsible for Sawyer's fate, so he's flying back to town to find some diamonds in hopes of saving him. It's kind of like if you you had a best friend and you had an argument that you lost your friendship over, it feels like you can... That's that's like the redemption, is like going back to bring them back to life. You're making amends. From what I observed, Cooper seemed like one of the leaders of the group. He was animated and supportive throughout the evening. So I was surprised to learn that at school, he struggles socially. This is partly because he moved from California to Colorado about a year ago. I'll be honest, I don't have any friends at school. Uh, it's really hard breaking into friend groups in senior year. When things aren't done correctly, I get frustrated really easily, and I want to just go over and show them how to do it. But I need to let people figure it out on their own, and doing it yourself is the best way you can learn. Another challenge for me is I'm very socially awkward, so being able to talk to a group of people that um, that I consider friends and being able to branch out and talk about different things other than D&D is... It, it's been very helpful. In the end, that's Fleckno's goal, to teach kids to support each other instead of constantly competing. In the teenage world of sports and SATs, Role Play Lead offers a much-needed respite. Kids are just looking for people who are like them to accept them. I have kids as old as 17 in, this, in one group and as young as 12, and they all get along and help each other, and they all care about each other. And I think that that's so often what we're looking for. Um, learning is difficult, and sometimes a traditional classroom doesn't always support the learning style of the kids. Not to say that they can't learn something in a classroom, but um, getting out into this kind of environment is changing how they learn. They are doing math all the time. They roll their dice. They have to add things to it. Our rule is no one helps. You, you do your own math. If you have to take off your shoes and socks, you're doing your own math. And that kind of stuff is really important, and it's worth it because it's in the game to them. If I just sat there and was like, here, roll dice and add stuff, they're, gonna, they're not going to learn. Thirteen. 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 Fleckno told me later that the party was unable to revive Sawyer's dead wizard. But she said he's excited to build a new character. Perhaps this time, one who's not so squishy. I'm Natasha Watts, CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Welcome. It's nice to meet you. In Aurora the other day, a smiling young couple opened their door to me. I'm Ryan. I'm Savannah. Hi, Savannah. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm Jason. Nice to meet you, Jason. Do you want me to take my shoes off? Please. If you don't don't mind. Yes, I'm that person at home. (laughs) 
which is why I ask. Savannah Rivka Powell and Jason Cordova have in their possession a cookbook, one I've been very excited to see. As part of The Kitchen Shelf, our series about old community cookbooks hiding out in homes across Colorado. Last time, it was a cookbook from the San Luis Valley created to raise money for a high school trip. This time? It's Shalom on the Range, a roundup of recipes and Jewish traditions from Colorado kitchens. Shalom on the Range. What a great title. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) A friend of mine bought it at a used book sale from the Denver Public Library. And it's in a kind of binder like you might have had in school. Yeah, which makes it really easy to work with when you're cooking, like the pages stay open. They really thought this through when they put this book together. And this is from Friends of Shalom Park, Denver, Colorado. Do we know what Shalom Park is? Shalom Park is a Jewish continuum of care organization providing residential health and social services to the elderly and their families. Oh, that's even better. (laughs) So how long have you had this book? Oh, for years? I'm trying to think um, at least five years. Yeah, somewhere around there. I think it was before we got to this house. What have been some of your favorite recipes from Shalom on the range over the years? The main one that is our go-to is for challah. It's a honey challah bread, which is very basic. And there's a lot of occasions where we want to make challah bread. Challah is a bread that's often eaten around Shabbat, the Sabbath. Yes, that's true. And on other Jewish holidays as well, which is part of the story behind this recipe. I have a really great memory. One of the first times I made it was near Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. Now, typically a challah, it's a braided bread that's made kind of in one long braid. And for the Jewish New Year, for Rosh Hashanah, what I did was I made a round challah. It was still braided, but it's round because of the symbology of the wholeness of the year. And then it also had honey, and I added gingered candy pieces in for like the sweetness. You want to have a sweetness in your coming year. Being not somebody who grew up Jewish, I've been really happy to learn about these traditions through Savannah. Why don't we read the page for challah? And this is one of the recipes we'll post from Shalom on the Range. You, Savannah, have kept this cookbook in remarkable shape. I'm not seeing, like, butter stains and oil stains. Not all of my cookbooks are in such good shape, though. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow I've been lucky with this one. (laughs) Honey twist challah. This dough can be used to make pletzel as well, which is another kind of bread. Yeah, and I haven't done that. I, I usually just stick to the challah. But what, what I think is great about this is the visual aid uh, that they have on the page to help you figure out how to braid the challah. Right. It almost looks like instructions for how to braid someone's hair. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much the same idea, but tastier. And this is what we're going to make today? Yeah. This challah, like the one, the round one that I told you I made, it has a pretty epic story that goes with it that's also very Colorado. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, so Jason and I are involved with the Native American community because Jason is Native American. And uh, we went to a ceremony, a teepee ceremony, in which afterwards you are supposed to bring a dish for the feast. And it just so happened that this ceremony was around Rosh Hashanah. So that's why I decided to make the challah. I made the round challah with the honey and the the ginger pieces. And I was very excited to share that. And this challah was huge. It was very big. And even though there were so many people and everybody loved it, I think we ate maybe half of it. And one of our friends absolutely loved it. And I was like, well, you know what? You can just take the rest of it. And she was so excited and she took it and went home. 
And a couple days later, I got a message from her, and she said, yeah, you know, about the khala, <laughs> I got home, and I live in the mountains, I left it in the back seat of my car, and a bear broke into the car, like somehow got into the car and ate what was left of the challah. Your challah was so delicious that it attracted wildlife. Yeah. It's a bear with good taste. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to think so. Before we make the challah, can we flip through a few other recipes yeah. to check them out? One thing that challah is really good for is bread pudding. But that is like such a huge undertaking. I thought of doing it, but I'm not confident in my bread pudding making skills. But there's two different bread pudding recipes in here. With challah as the bread. Yeah, yeah. Challah is, I think, the perfect bread for bread pudding. So here, this is the really fancy one. It's bread pudding with caramel mascarpone cream. Wow. One loaf of challah, one half stick of unsalted butter, Sugar, cinnamon, vanilla bean, whipping cream, lots and lots of eggs, and your favorite liquor. Yeah. The preface of this book is so sweet. Jason, will you read just those first lines? Why a cookbook? Because cooking is so near and dear to the Jewish heart. Because for Jewish people, food means sharing and love and nurturing and hospitality. And because... Great Colorado Jewish cooks tested and tasted delicious recipes collected from over 400 Shalom Park supporters. So this is a really great section of the book. They have Jewish blessings for all the holidays. The Hebrew is actually written out. Hanukkah blessings, blessings for the beginning of every holiday, blessings over wine. I think that's my favorite blessing. Yeah. So we have some of these cute local names, the Boulder Broccoli Casserole and the Denver Chocolate Cake. Oh, the Palisade Fall Fruit Salad, as in Palisade, Colorado. Yeah, there are a couple of recipes throughout the book that use the Palisade peaches, which I love. Well, what do you say we make some challah? Yeah, that sounds great. Sounds good. Let's go. Oh, so we have to prepare the dough according to like these very detailed instructions that they have on page 71. Oh, there's a supplement here. Yeah, and, and this is a yeasted bread, so we have to mix everything and knead it and kind of wait a little bit. Jason and Savannah are opting for a whole wheat flour. It sounds healthier, Savannah says. Yeast is added, eggs are cracked. They heat a delicious mix of water, milk, honey, and butter on the stove. Savannah adds her signature candied ginger, and the kneading begins. Okay, if it's possible to add more, I think it would be good to add a little more flour. Okay. Do you need a break? I can do stirring. I could use the exercise. You guys have such lovely cooperation. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> always. All the time it's like this. I, I promise. So it's getting close to when we can maybe work the dough, beat it up a bit with our hands. Now we're kneading the dough. We need to knead Kneading followed by braiding. Remember, challah is a braided bread. Then time to let the dough rise and into the oven. 30 minutes at 350 degrees. And my favorite part of a radio cooking segment, warping time past the baking and the cooling and getting right to the tasting of Savannah and Jason's honey ginger challah, courtesy of the Shalom on the Range cookbook. The bread is positively glimmering, the result of an egg wash. And then you can sprinkle something on top, sesame seeds. I like poppy seeds, so that's, that's what I use in this case. Shall we give it a taste? Yeah, let's go for it. 
Oh, the honey. That is mm. so good. And the ginger. And for this one, um, we got the ginger from an Asian grocery store. I believe it's a Vietnamese one off of Federal. And so the ginger's like sliced very thin, which is perfect, I think, for baking. I just got the bit of ginger. It's not too hot. It just has a nice finish. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's candied ginger. So it adds a bit sweet and a bit of spicy. It would be dangerous to have this in my house. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it would last very long. Mm -hmm. Can I have a second piece? Definitely, yeah. <laughs> well, guys, this has been fun and delicious. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this has been a good time. Jason Cordova and Savannah Rivka Powell of Aurora, we cooked from Shalom on the Range, a roundup of recipes and Jewish traditions from Colorado kitchens. At CPR.org, find recipes for Palisade Fall Fruit Salad and Red Rocks Potatoes and the challah, of course. If you have a beloved old Colorado cookbook, snap a photo of it and send it to me, news at CPR.org, or tweet at CPRWarner. Finally today, it's been almost four years since we've heard new music from Denver's Esme Patterson. Her 2016 album, We Were Wild, electrified her sound, which had been pretty folksy to that point. For her latest project, Patterson collaborated with the pop duo of Elena Moore and Patrick Riley, known as Tennis, to produce her first proper pop album. There Will Come Soft Rains was released this month. Here's a song Esme Patterson says is about longing for the end of longing. It's called Light in Your Window. Every time I drive down your street I look for the light in your window I look for the light in your window I look for the light in your window Every time that I fall asleep I look for the light in your window I'm shook by the sight of your shadow Denver's Esme Patterson with Light in Your Window. Her new album is out now. This is CPR News. <laughs>